I find that the news can be depressing, don't you? Uh, Whether you read it in the papers, uh, watch it on TV, listen to it in the car, uh, you're in for a sustained period of harrowing storylines from around the world. Now, I know it's not all bad, is it? Uh, Indeed, on TV these days, they always try to end uh, with an upbeat, upbeat story, don't they? Have you noticed that? And yet it always seems so small by comparison, as if hearing about millions close to death going through an appalling time can be offset by news of a Russian art show in London. That was yesterday's light relief. Why is that the case? What's wrong with the world? Because something is. When the world is full of war, then something's wrong. When children in one continent are obese, while children in another continent starve, then something's wrong. When recently a group of teenagers can kick a father of three to death outside his home, then something's wrong. When the average mortgage in Britain lasts more than twice as long as the average marriage, well, then something's wrong. You don't need me to tell you that. You don't even need the news to tell you that. Because we all see it every day of our lives. That's what we heard from Joe earlier on. But I want to ask you how you cope with it. How you make sense of it. See, many uh, will try to ignore it. Okay, we know about Kenya and Iraq and Afghanistan and Israel and Palestine. Uh, We know about the AIDS pandemic and a generation of AIDS orphans. But but we develop the ability to switch off our minds, other than for those few minutes when the headline is literally before our eyes. We don't live in Kenya. And so we hope that we will manage to beat the trend and go through life unscathed by the tragedy that we know is all around us. If we don't ignore it, then perhaps we try to apportion blame. It's the fault of corrupt political regimes, cruel dictators, violent monsters. We look for an individual or group that we, can, that we can pin it on. So that in our minds, at least, the world is neat again. Bad people cause bad things, but otherwise things are okay. Or some, of course, seek to blame God. To say that if he does exist, well, then he's not even worth knowing. He doesn't seem to be doing a very good job. Others take it as proof that he is not there at all. How do you make sense of the world? And how does that affect what you believe about God? Now, before we come to this passage, it's important to say that the Bible's claim is that things have not always been this way. That when the world was created by God, it was perfect. Like the Rubik's Cube on its way out of the factory. Do you remember these? Icon of the 80s? Apparently it has 43 quintillion different possible permutations. I don't even know what a quintillion is. I'm glad I wasn't the one who had to count them. Uh, But on its way out of the factory, it always has this one, doesn't it? Everything perfectly aligned. Everything as it should be. Everything in the right relationship to everything else. That's what the world was like when God made it. Uh, It's when we started to meddle that things went wrong. It's when we started to twist and turn to say that we called the shots, that we were in control, that the world ended up in a complete mess. I'm never going to get that back now. (laughs) What went wrong? 
Well, you and I did. That's the claim of the Bible. It's the claim of the passage that we had read out to us. Do turn to it with me. If you've got sight of a Bible, uh, page 1130, as we spend the next few moments thinking about it together. See, the Christian faith is very realistic about the way the world is. But it doesn't try to ignore it and forget about it the way we often do. It doesn't try to shift the blame onto just those few individuals or groups. No, instead it confronts each one of us tonight with the way we really are. And then it points us to what God has done about it. And the first point I think it makes here is that we have all turned away from God. Let me read to you again from verse 9. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So we're all under sin there. All sinners, what does that mean? After all, it's a Bible word, isn't it? We don't tend to use it anywhere else unless we're talking about uh, chocolate cakes or, or fowls in rugby. Or what it means is unpacked in what follows, I think. You see, to be a sinner means that we're not righteous. We're not right with God. We don't understand God the way we should, nor do we even try. There's no one who seeks God here. Instead, we turn away from him. We don't do what is good. We do what we please. See, primarily, sin is about our relationship with God. And we have ignored him, turned away from him, and forgotten about him. But even though it starts there, it starts in our relationship with God, it spreads quickly to every area of our lives. So verse 13 there. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, sin, it affects our mouths and tongues in what we say. It's our feet in where we go. It's our eyes in what we look at. We're marked by deceit, ruin, misery, lust, war, bloodshedding. All because we do not fear God. We do not worry about him or what he thinks. How many of us could look back over even the last week and say that we have not said or done or thought anything we shouldn't have? I certainly can't. A sin against God spreads to every area of our lives. And it spreads to all of us. And yes, that does mean all. So yes, it does mean you. And it does mean me. It it couldn't be more emphatic here, could it? Those those phrases repeat one after after the other. No one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together become worthless. On and on it goes. This is everyone. This is me. And of course it explains those headlines, doesn't it? If there were no sin in the world, oh, there would be no wars or starvation, no need to lock our homes or cars, no fear in our streets, no arguments or lost tempers, no divorce or drunkenness. And yet perhaps at this stage you're thinking, hang on a minute, I'm prepared to admit that I don't do everything as I should. 
I've done some things that I'm ashamed of, but I've done other things that I'm proud of. There are times when I I tell the truth instead of lie. I don't go around killing people. I don't know, perhaps maybe 80, 90% of the time, I follow what God would want me to do. That's an easy A in any A-level or GCSE. It's a straight first in a university degree. So what's the problem? Surely I've passed the mark. If that's what you're thinking, then in one sense you're right. This passage isn't saying that we are all as bad as we could be. It's self-evident that we're not. But, well, for a start, we don't get anywhere near the 90% we might think we do. But even if we did, the 10% of the time we go against God's commandments actually shows that 100% of the time we are not following him. Let me try to explain that to I'm sure you've had the experience, as I have, that sometimes you're walking uh, in an empty street in a quiet part of the city centre, late at night perhaps, and you hear footsteps behind you. And you can very quickly become self-conscious. And either because I have an irrational fear of being mugged or perhaps I've just seen one too many spy films, but it's easy to start wondering whether the person is deliberately following you. And so what do you do? Well, you might pick up the pace, you might uh, turn a corner here or there, And every time, sooner or later, sure enough, the footsteps move away. Now, when that happens, what am I to conclude? Am I to think, aha, that person was following me for 90% of the time, but just wasn't for the remaining 10%? Of course not. The fact that they turned away at all, even if it was just for the last 100 metres, shows that they were never following me. They were never even giving me a second thought. And if they were going the same way as me for a time, it's just because it's where they wanted to go anyway. You see, it's the same with us and God. The fact that we turn away from him at all shows that we are not trying to follow him. And where we do keep some of the commandments that we might read in the Bible, it's not because we wanted to do what God says. It's just that that's what we wanted to do anyway. And so the underlying problem is the same for all of us, however respectable your life. Because all of us have lived ignoring the one who made us, the one who calls the shots in the universe, that that definition of sin that we're given, that we turn from and ignore God. And it leaves us lost. It leaves us disconnected from him, unable to find him. As verse 17 here says, the way of peace, peace with God, we do not know. We are sinners, you and I. We've turned from the one who made us and the world is in a mess as a result and our relationship with God is in tatters. We've all turned away from God. That's the first point which our passage makes. I apologise, it's a gloomy start to a sermon, isn't it? But we need to hear it because it is true. And it's serious. Let's move on uh, to the next paragraph there. Because there we see the next point, that trying to be better won't help. Have a look at verse 19, just towards the bottom of the page there. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. 
in our kids' bedroom. We've got two children, Emma and Jonathan, but we have a, a giraffe. Um, it's not that surreal. Here it is. Um, it's, a, it's a wooden giraffe, and uh, it hangs on the wall. It's got height gradations up the side. I'm not sure if you can see that. It's up to uh, well, about 1 metre 50, and uh, we haven't really got rolling with this yet, but the plan is that every Christmas and birthday we'll, we'll stand them against it and mark on uh, where they are. Perhaps you had one uh, similar when you were growing up. We, we had one in my family, uh, only it wasn't uh, a giraffe. It was a sort of budget version. We had a stick. <laughs> uh, it went from floor to ceiling, and uh, way up at the top of the stick uh, was my brother Jamie. You see, he was about, he's about 15 years older than me, and so he'd levelled off at his six foot two by about the time I could walk. You see, the thing about a stick measuring time was that whenever my my turn came and my dad got me to stand with my back to the wall with with a ruler in his hand to put on the top of my head so that he could score uh, the right spot, you see, I would always just try to stand up on tiptoes, hoping that no one would notice. I don't think it ever worked. If it did, then the stick must show that I'd shrunk the next time. But even if I got away with it, there was no way I would ever be as tall as Jamie. All the stick did was remind me of that fact. Well, you see what this passage is saying? It's saying that all our attempts to lead better lives, to do good, to follow God's laws, they are like the tiptoeing of a small child. Because we will never match up to God's standards, never reach the heights of his perfection. See see there in verse 23? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You will never get right with God by your own efforts. It is impossible. And it's too late anyway, because we've already clocked up, what, 15, 35, 75 years of ignoring him. And all of God's laws, the Ten Commandments, the hundreds of other commandments, that we could read in the Bible, all serve to point the finger at us and say, you do not measure up. So that in the words of that middle paragraph, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God because through the law we become conscious of sin. We have no defence that we can give to God for our behaviour. And yet we will stand trial. We will be held accountable. We may ignore him, but he is fully aware of us and what we've done. And a lifetime of turning away from the eternal God will lead to an eternal lifetime of him turning away from us in a place which the Bible calls hell, a place of weeping and sorrow and bitterness. I said it was a gloomy start. It's getting worse, isn't it? These are not truths I relish. But we have turned from God. He will judge us for that. And trying to be better won't help. There is nothing we can do about it ourselves. And yet the passage doesn't end there, does it? It goes on to give us good news. And this isn't the sort of 10 o'clock good news that pales into insignificance compared with what has come before it. No, instead it is big enough to solve all the world's problems, all our problems, and more. And the news is of God's great power and concern and rescue and love, all of which we see in Jesus Christ. 
Have a look there at verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. See, that it is a righteousness from God that Jesus offers us. Not from our own efforts, not by trying harder, but instead from God. A gift from him to us. A gift that makes us right with him again. A gift that means that instead of being lost, unable to find him, he comes and finds us. That means that where we have been unwilling to and incapable of treating him as he deserves, he offers to treat us as his friends. And it is Jesus who makes it possible. Jesus who puts us right with God again. Jesus who makes it possible that despite our sin, despite our guilt, God can treat us as though we were innocent. That's what it means to be justified, that word in verse 24. It means being treated as innocent. It comes at a price. It says we're justified through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Just as years ago you could redeem a slave by paying the price that was set on them, so Jesus has paid the price hanging over our heads. That where we are accountable to God, facing his judgment, Jesus has paid our account in full. He does that on the cross, paying the price in his own blood. So verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Jesus sacrifices himself for us. Because as he died on the cross, God was willing to inflict the punishment that I truly deserve onto Jesus Christ so that he endured the torments of hell so that I need never do. So that where he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can cry out, my God, why have you chosen to love me with this amazing love? A righteousness from God has been made known in Jesus. What's wrong with the world? We've all turned away from God. Trying to be better won't help, but Jesus can, and he has. So how can that be true for you and for me? How can we benefit from God's great generosity? Just as I finish, the answer is quite simple. It is through faith. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 25, it is through faith in his blood. It's saying that we need to trust him. We are today being offered a gift from God, freely given, the gift of his own son, so that we can avoid eternal punishment and enjoy eternal life with God, starting right now. Nothing to do, nothing to pay, nothing we can earn. We need only accept the offer. That's what it is to trust God. Where we have turned away from God in our hearts, we can turn to him now and know that he has forgiven us and know that he will keep us as his people and his friends.
Oh, now perhaps you've already done that in your life. It is great, isn't it? Why not take a moment to realise afresh the amazing extent of God's love for you. Let it fill your thoughts and let it direct your lives once more. But perhaps you're ready to turn to God now. You, you know you haven't done it before, but you see that you need his forgiveness, and his rescue. You see that through Jesus you can have it. And so you're ready to turn to him now. Now, if that is you, well then right now I'm going to pray a prayer which you could use as a way of responding to God. Uh, what I'll do, I'll read it out first uh, so that you can see if it says the sort of thing that you'd like to say to God. And after that I'll pray it through more slowly so that you can echo it in your hearts. Uh, here it is, it, it's picking up on language from this passage. Heavenly Father, I realise that I've turned from you and have not followed you in my life. I realise I deserve your judgment and that I can't help myself. But thank you for Jesus, for his death on the cross and the offer of forgiveness you have given. I now turn to you and accept your gift. Please help me as I now seek to live as one of your people. For Jesus' sake, amen. Uh, That's the prayer. It might not be appropriate for you today. Uh, There's no pressure. But I'm particularly talking to those who are thinking, yes, I need to do this. I can't let an offer like this go. So if that's you, then use this opportunity. Let's take a moment of silence to pray together. Heavenly Father, I realise that I have turned from you I realise I have not followed you in my life. I realise I deserve your judgment and that I can't help myself. But thank you for Jesus. For his death on the cross and the offer of forgiveness you have given me. I now turn to you and accept your gift. Please help me as I now seek to live as one of your people. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, if you have prayed that prayer for the first time, then that is great news. It's always exciting starting on a new relationship with anyone, but all the more so when it is with the God of the universe. Uh, You might want to talk to someone about it. You you may have come here with a friend. You could talk to them. Uh, Or if not, Dave and I will be at the doors at the end and then over in the church centre, and we'd be very happy to chat. But let me just say a final word as well to those who are interested, uh, but still not quite sure. Uh, Perhaps you'd like to think things through a bit more. If that's you, then do join us at that Christianity Explore course that Dave mentioned in the notices starting next Tuesday. Don't miss out on the offer of a lifetime. And also, if that's you, I've got a short leaflet 
here that I'd love to give you. They're free, we've got loads. Uh, It just explains a bit more about Jesus and what it means to trust him. Uh, There's a flyer for the course inside. I'll have a a stack of them at the door. Do just grab one from me on your way out. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, We're going to end now by singing a great hymn that takes us to the heart of this good news. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Now, you'll see it mentioned on the sheet that uh, during this hymn, you'll see bags going along the, the rows. That's really just for the regular members of the church here. If you're a guest, please feel no hesitation in passing that along. A number of the people here do uh, for different reasons. Let's now stand to sing, And Can It Be?